I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Ben LaRue of Benjamin LaRue, based in Bone in Burgundy. Hello, sir. How are you? Hello. Very good, Levy. It's nice to see you. So you have a winery in Bone now, but you actually grew up in Bone as well. Yeah, I haven't moved uh, very far, actually. <laughs> uh, grew up in Bone, was born there in 1975. My family is attached to Bone, but uh, family had, uh, had absolutely no, no vineyards. But uh, my parents had a flower shop. So I studied, the, I studied the wine school in Bonn in 1990. So I was just 15. And uh, with the wine school, you need to do a bit of apprenticeship. It's not much, but I think the first year was like nine weeks. So harvest time, pruning time, you know, to see a bit of all the, the work which are going around the vineyards. And uh, as I've got two older brothers, you know, were like going out into town. Uh, Pascal Marchand was also liking to go out in town. So they knew each other. They were all friends. And uh, when it happened that I was looking for an estate, Pascal was uh, said straight away, yes. Uh, meeting Pascal, it definitely like uh, brought me his passion. Uh, Pascal arrived in Burgundy in uh, 1985. Because he's from Quebec. He's from Quebec, yeah. He was probably looking for himself in Quebec and uh, decided with two friends to go and do harvest in Burgundy because it was, uh, seems fun. They did like wine at the time, huh? and uh, went to do harvest, and uh, then he met, uh, he met his first wife, and uh, he never left. So not, not coming from a wine background, done a year of uh, quick studies at Bonn College, and, uh, and then uh, the Contermont was looking for someone, and he was, he was there. So in the late 80s, he became the head winemaker at Contermont, the Clota Epineau producer. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, it was something quite new. And I think that's something great from the Contarmont. If you look back at the history of, of that estate, he always like uh, took very young uh, with not much background. I think it's quite, it was quite brave. I mean, looking back, uh, he's done that with Pascal. Uh, they hired me. I was just 24 without much experience, you know, a bit of experience in different places, but not as a manager. Because you succeeded Pascal eventually. I at succeeded that Pascal, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
not much experience. And if it was me, I always ask myself, you know, now I'm running a business. Uh, how should I see it in the future? Imagine, I mean, I'm not doing it for my kids, but if one of them wants to carry on, I will help. But will, will I be brave enough to take someone without any experience from a very young age? And I think he's, he's been right, and he's been, he's been pretty good so far. And uh, I quite like that idea. Because the thing about Pascal is he was largely self-taught, as you referred to. Yeah, he was definitely uh, self-taught, yeah. Uh, but talented. He had no, no background in the wine, uh, so his mind was totally free. And uh, he had the freedom to express you know, his idea and with, with an eye, an overview, which coming from outside. So for him, he was coming from Quebec, you know, all new, and every idea was like, uh, you know, fresh and, and new. He's done a lot for Burgundy, you know, he was part of his generation, like with Dominique uh, Lafont, Christophe Roumier. Uh, this generation, you know, was like the first one to make a real transition on, uh, in like the Burgundy wine uh, landscape. First people to, to travel, you know, to go elsewhere. But for me, imagine I arrived there at 15 and 15 is also teenage time. At teenage time, you, you, you're looking for yourself, of course. You don't know exactly who you are, who you want to be. And uh, the key person are, are super important. So started with Pascal. Pascal brought me like uh, his passion. Uh, at the time, he was one of the first to go to Biodynamic. This was the 90s that he did that. Wait, but imagine, imagine like for many estate people were talking about it. Because at the time, it was mostly uh, chemical uh, with herbicide to Biodynamic. You know, and that's, that was typically Pascal. There's no in-between with Pascal. It's very extreme. And he went like from the estate was, you know, managed not a bad way, but managed like it was in the 80s. And suddenly he said, no, we're changing and we're going to biodynamic. That gave me uh, definitely the, my first uh, direction into, uh, into work, which was definitely organic and biodynamic. That said, you know, I grew up, when in the family, you know, when, when we, we had uh, to fix, you know, little, uh, little disease or things like that, it was always uh, homeopathy, organic and uh, using plants. So I grew, I grew up a bit this way. And your parents were flower merchants. You're using every, every part of your life, you know, uh, because I remember working, you know, after school, you know, like uh, peeling the, the roses and preparing the flower. All those aroma, you know, it's, it's just, it was just fantastic. I love that. I really, I really love that. See, it's always, uh, it's always about smell. I remember we talked about Griot one time, and you mostly talked about aroma. And I think when people usually talk about Chambertin Cruz, that's not the first thing that they talk about. But Griot, Griot is a bit, is, is a bit special. It's a bit apart from all the Cru. It's a, it's a different section of uh, of the Grand Cru of uh, of Gevray. But quite an amazing wine to make. Uh, it's a very in intriguing place. You know, the first time I made a griot was 2011, and uh, I was feeling a bit lost the first time. And uh, it, it took me three vintages to really understand the, the, the place. And that's the great thing. That's actually what I like on the Negos side and purchasing fruit in many different places. It's, to me, the way to really understand the diversity and variety of, uh, of terroir that Burgundy has. So... I multiply, you know, the, the amount of, uh, of wine I'm making. Uh, I'm making a lot of cuvee with one barrel, two barrels, three barrels. But it's such a joy, you know, it's such a joy to be able to touch 
all those uh, different places. Well, this is the relational aspect of terroir, where one thing is not one thing, it's different than this other thing. So to understand one wine, you have to try several in a way. Definitely. So the thing about you is you traveled pretty extensively in that period between when you first worked with Pascal Marchand and when then you came back. So you were in New Zealand, you were in South America, you were in Bordeaux, you were in Oregon, and you worked with Jodeau for a while in Burgundy, right? Yeah, 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 definitely. I'm talking of my apprenticeship. So 1990 to 1993. First of all, one of the great experiences I had was to work with an experimental section about new technique in uh, organic growing. We were working on, uh, on a little spider called Tiflodromus piri. It's actually the, the start of, uh, of people realizing that uh, the ecosystem's working naturally. So, you know, at the time there were issues with like red spider, yellow spider in the vineyards. So people always still had to use uh, insecticide uh, and not the best one. I don't know if there's a good one actually, but it was not, uh, not great. And uh, there were one guy who said, you know, actually, if you don't use this insecticide, there's another spider who can actually eat those, those other spiders and you'll be fine. And uh, 1992 was the early beginning. But then after now, I mean, no one's using those insecticides because we know how to protect those spiders. And uh, that was great, you know. I mean, I've started to see, to see really, really inside, you know, what we can do in the ecosystem. And, linked with biodynamic because biodynamic is more philosophy than a technique, but it's teaching you how to observe. And then I was wanting to go elsewhere. So uh, meeting Veronique Droin and said, we have this, uh, this estate in, uh, in Oregon. Uh, we can send you there, you know, and uh, we, we're taking always like a couple of interns every year. And uh, I went there in 94. Amazing, amazing vintage in Oregon. Such a great experience. And it was so good that in 95, uh, I called Veronique. I said, you know, can I come again? She said, of course, you know, <laughs> we'll keep the same team. So we did a, I did a second vintage over there. Uh, then meeting Veronique, uh, I said to her, you know, I'd love to have another experience, but outside Burgundy and maybe with something else than Pinot and, uh, and Chardonnay. And uh, she said, oh, actually, you know, I've got great contact in, uh, in Bordeaux with Cos des Tournelles. And uh, she, she kindly uh, wrote a letter to Bruno Prats, and uh, I was in. What was that experience like? It was great. I've learned a lot about a uh, very different region, you know, like uh, when you grow up, you know, Bordeaux, Burgundy, not closest friends. Uh, that was back in the 90s. I think that has changed a lot since. But a very, very different philosophy, uh, working with various variety, uh, blending. And that teach me a lot in terms of, uh, it did enlarge a lot my, my aromatic spectrum and uh, my way of seeing things. Where in Burgundy, we like single vineyards and like, you don't talk about blending, but sometimes if you have a larger plot, such as Claude de Zepneau, from my own experience, it did bring me a lot on the blending experience. You came back in the late 90s and you became the head winemaker at Claude Epineau, which is in Pomar. I came back in uh, I came back in '99. Uh, Again, it's it's always a question of like chance and uh, to be there at the right time and uh, to be available at the right time and to make also the right choice. And uh, you never you only know after. But Pascal called me and said, "You know, actually, um, 
I want uh, I want to leave. Uh, Boisset's got a very great project with uh, La Vougeray, and, uh, and I think I'm going to leave. And are you interested by uh, by taking over Contarmont? Of course, yes. <laughs> and the Contarmont called me. Uh, that was on the 14th of July, 99. That's still there. Your first harvest at Comptamon in Pomar was the 1999 vintage, and by that time, under Pascal, they had also purchased parcels in Volnay, Auxay, and elsewhere. Yeah, at the time in 1999, uh, the estate was, uh, was 10 hectares. 10 hectares, uh, so a bit of white, with Meursault, Meursault Méchavot, uh, Auxay du Reste, a bit of Bourgogne and Aligoté. And of course, uh, Volney aussi du reste in red and Claude des Epneaux, hein, which was more than half the estate. And 99, you know, 99, uh, what a vintage to start. My issue was more to find the space to put all the fruits in the winery. Contrairement, uh, the winery was made only for the Claude des Epneaux, so with all those extra vineyards and with quite, quite a large crop, like 99, it was really tight, really tight. But... The great thing with that estate, actually, with beautiful building, 15th century, uh, but the wall, uh, you can't move the wall over there, huh? they're one meter large. It teach me how to deal with a small space. And uh, that, that was quite, uh, quite good. Uh, in 2000, part of the vineyards went back to their owner because some vineyards were, were rented. And suddenly I had no more whites to do. And uh, to me, I always love making both, red and white. In 2000, I really missed not having any whites to make. And uh, came back like six months after harvest to the Comte Armand and said, I really loved making the Merceau and Ossé du Reste. And uh, I mean, he said, yeah, that's Ben, you know, be a bit patient. We will find more vineyards. And uh, actually, there were a couple of vineyards for sale. The Contarmont was not the only one to decide because you have all the family around. And it didn't happen. And uh, I came back to him and said, you know, why, why, why are we not starting uh, Micronegos just in fruit? You know, let's see what we can make. Uh, we have two years to decide if, you know, the quality is good enough to sell it on the Contarmont name. Uh, to have no confusion, we will do only whites because like this, you know, the estate is red. The Negos is white. And he said, yeah, why not? Let's start. And uh, it was my first approach on purchasing fruit. So we started in 2001 with a free barrel of Ossé Duresse. So we started gently in 2000, 2002, seeing that it was, was working. And we had anyway, we had the winery, we had the tool. Uh, we increased the volume, you know, around 50, 60 barrels, uh, only with free appellation uh, up to 2006. And at some point I said, you know, it was not enough to me. White was one thing, but I was wanting to go a bit elsewhere. And of course, uh, touch a few fruits from the Côte de Nuit and the Pinot, where suddenly that's creating a confusion between Contarmont. And uh, it's an historic name, you know, it's got more than 200 years of history. You can't, you can't do whatever, you know, for at least, at least for the brand. So in 2006, I was, I was hunting by a, by a famous estate in Burgundy, and uh, and to be to be fair, you know, it was it was like quite nice, you know, to see that people will will think about you to run their place. And I mean, it's another great name on the on my experience. But uh, 
2006, I was 31. And to me, it was hard to leave a job that I've started because in 99, I mean, the, the estate was not entirely biodynamic. I mean, I, I straight away converted. I've done the conversion. It was certified after. And uh, it takes more time. So I said to the contemporary, I'm happy where I am. I'm not looking for more money. But can I have more freedom to to do something on the side and uh, to create my own micronegos because I think here it's too limited. And uh, if you agree, you know, I'm I'm happy to stay another another five years and uh, and not take the job. So uh, he didn't think much, you know. It was like less than one minute. He said, "You know what? I agree, but you stay another ten years." So in the end, you know, we we split in two. So I stayed another seven years at Contarment while I was like building my own brand. Because you were there through 2014 and you started Benjamin LaRue around 2007. Yeah. I've done seven, seven vintage uh, with, uh, with both. Before we move on to your own project, you know, I visited Contarment Claude Epineau one time, but I don't know a lot about it and I think you do. So if I understand correctly, it's a walled vineyard, so a clo, but it, it encapsulates within that clo both Grand and Petite Epineau, which are separate vineyard crews. Yeah, yeah. Claude Epineau is um, it's, it's definitely a clo. Huh? It's a uh, two meters fifty wall around. We have a letter, you know, where the wall was finished in uh, 1805 during French Revolution. Quite amazing huh, for an aristocratic family. It was part of the Marémange. They've been able, you know, to preserve all the all the belonging during that time. And uh, it went to the Armand family uh, as a wedding gift. You know, it's what we call a dot. 5.23 hectares, to be exact. Uh, it's definitely in between Grand and Petit Epneau. You have a half an hectare of Grand Epneau. The rest is in Petit Epneau. But that said, here you are, you are talking about uh, the Lieu Claude des Epneaux is also an appellation. It is an appellation, so it's not only a name which is given. But if we want to declassify, we can call Petit Epno, yeah, or Grand Epno. Let's say there were like four main blocks, two on the top, two at the bottom, uh, with different age of vine, too. First of all, you know, 5.2 hectares, you can't ferment all of them in the same tank. Then they've done quite a good job in the past by replanting bit by bit, and uh, Pascal, when he started, he had Domaine des Epneaux was just one wine and one, one vineyard. So uh, at some point, you know, it was super interesting to divide. Uh, and also he was playing on it also for the tasting because uh, people were coming to your place and uh, they were just one wine to taste. So uh, that's the interesting part. And I'm using it a lot today because imagine if that vine's been divided like many vineyards have been. People will say, you know, well, the bottom of the Claude des is not the most interesting part. Uh, the top is the best. Uh, I made wine from every, every single block. Uh, when I started, you know, Pascal was mostly working with five. I decided to divide it even more. I went to eight different cuvées. Uh, and at some point, all the time, you know, I mean, I've done small bottling of each block to keep, huh, not to sell. And each time we've done, you know, like blind tasting of all the different blocks, in the end, the final blend was always the best. And you could see it on many, 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 many different ways. The people who build the wall around, you know, they, they did it quite well. We've done, we've done geological analysis on both sides of the wall. You know, the walls are not straight. 
and they're really following the geological fault. And yes, you have a bit of Grimpno with a different geology, actually. But those vineyards are meant to be together. And that's, that's important on the fruit purchase because I'm not only especially looking, you know, for the best spot on top with the older vine. And I like when I've got a bit of everything because you're touching really the expression of the terroir and the best balance. You're always talking about the Clovougeau. I'm making single vineyards in Clovougeau because I don't have access to all the diversity, but I'd love to make a Clovougeau with all the different parts because, yeah, the top might be better than the bottom, but I think all together it will make a much, much better wine. The true image usually is the entire place. So it, it's something I'm reproducing a lot on my wine when so, I can. For example, when you do village wines, so like a Gevray village or a Volnay village, you blend and you yeah. blend different parcels and you'll treat those parcels differently. You'll do a whole cluster on one vineyard more than in another vineyard and then you'll blend them together and there'll be different clonal materials or massal and there'll be different vine ages when you do that. Mm, sure. I'm talking of village wine. Huh? I love like bringing a bit of purchase from a different place to be able to have all the diversity of, of actually the appellation. Again, it's, it's one experience I had with Claude Zipnou because the Volnay village at the beginning, uh, I, was, I was able to make a great one once every five years because where it's located, it could be great, but it could be uh, average. It's when we started to purchase other vineyards, we choose exactly where. And when we had the two together, we were able to make great Volnay four years out of five. Uh, the first time we had some hell, you know, as we had the negos, I've been able to purchase a bit of fruit to make the cuvee big enough to ferment, you know. And uh, I choose on purpose a different side of Volnay, and it's probably the best Volnay we've made because suddenly we had all the diversity and it was much more balanced. And uh, it opened a lot of my eyes, you know. You could stick to what you have and be lucky, but if you have the opportunity to make it better, why, why not? Why not? At Comptemont, the blending wasn't just about parcels. There was also different grape varieties in the clo. So there's Pinot Noir, but there's also a small amount of Pinot Bureau yeah, yeah, and that's, Pinot Blanc. That's, that's, it's like the old type of plantation. You know, it's, um, first, it's a higher density, 12,000 vine and hectare, which I think was quite clever at the time and brave. Uh, with about, well, it depends on the block, but let's say 3% average of uh, uh, Pinot Blanc but mostly what we call bureau in, uh, in Burgundy. And I always kept them together, you know. It's, uh, so on the sorting table, yeah, every case is you have a few white grapes coming through. It was super important, and, and I'm reproducing that on the plantation I'm doing now. To understand, because sometimes we talk about tradition, and uh, tradition is, uh, what is tradition? It's what we can remember, you know, of uh, how people, usually two generations or three generations. Tradition are changing, you know, it depends on the time. And it's super interesting to see why people were working one way and maybe think why, why we're still working the same way or where they're working for quality reason or for practical reason. And uh, on the old plantation, you know, that was things they were doing, but they were also doing it in white with uh, aligoté and chardonnay. A bit of aligoté in the chardonnay was quite a common thing. I wonder sometimes if we don't restrain too much ourselves with rules. Uh, a bit of aligoté in the Chardonnay, but I'm talking of planting, eh? not blending after. But uh, uh, 
could be an answer for the future. In terms of climate change, you mean? In terms of climate change, yeah. And Comte Armand went through a long period after a phylloxera of not being replanted. And then it was planted in the 30s. And as you said, it was planted at high density. So the questions that people were asking after phylloxera was like, how should we replant this? And you feel, to extend this thought a little bit further, that with the climate changing in Burgundy, that these are questions that are perhaps more relevant again than ever. Yeah, they are. They are because what I'm going to replant during my life, I won't see those vineyards at their best because they will be at their best 50 years later. And I'd love to make it right for the next generation. We have high suspicion that in 50 years' time, it's going to be warmer in Burgundy and probably drier. So temperature is, is not the main concern, because I think we can adapt ourselves on the way we're growing vine. But water, water is, uh, water is, uh, is the other thing, you know. I've worked also as a consultant and during a part of my life, but each time I was going somewhere where you had uh, irrigation or things, I said, I said uh, well, I don't see the future there. There's no interest. How can you see those vineyards in 300 years? Because you're going to have a big lack of water. We need to adapt ourselves and see things differently. Uh, clay, clay definitely is uh, are interesting. <laughs> so clay soils retain water is what you're... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Clay soils retain water. We had sign of drought in, uh, in, in 18. Uh, which is rare in Burgundy because the last time that is, really happened very was rare. three. Yeah, 2003. Right? Usually it can be warm, like in 15, but you don't have drought because you had rain in 15, right? Yeah, it, the difference is uh, 2003 was very exceptional because it was like, you know, really like a heat wave. But the year 2003, overall, is not that warm. I think 2018 is 1.6 degrees average above uh, 2003, huh? to give an idea. 2018 is the warmest year ever recorded in, uh, in Burgundy. The second warmest year is 17. The third is 15. <laughs> so that's where, that's where we're going. So uh, we need to do everything. We'll see some electric tractors. We will see, I mean, lots of things. Better sprayer, you know, maybe, you know, drone to take the weeds out. Why not? You know, new technology can bring things. But we need to adapt ourselves, I think. And we need to think about it now. Uh, trying to do things exactly like we, we, we used to is, I don't think it's the right move. But that's, I'm talking about the viticulture side, but also the winery side. For example, you know, my cellar is getting warmer. It's not a big difference. And huh? warmer is like 0 0.5 degrees. Should I put a cooling system everywhere and, uh, and keep the temperature they used to be? Or maybe should I see how the wine's evolving with this change and rethink our way of aging wine? Uh, I'm all for the second option. I want to learn with, with what's happening and see maybe we can get good things out of it. So uh, I don't want to resist. I want, I'm, more, I'm more on the, the, the position to adapt. When you move to organics, and sometimes you've used biodynamics, have you seen soil pH change and thus acidity change in the wines? In terms of soil analysis, no, you won't. I mean, pH, you can have small variation, but it doesn't change it much. The change is definitely more in the, in, in the wine, yeah. You can see change in, uh, in the analysis of the wine with usually slightly higher acidity when you move to organic. but. It's not always significant, but on the taste it is. So the, the feeling of freshness. You have 
something brighter, definitely. One of the things you've wondered about is if through over-fertilization, people have added too much nitrogen to the soil and if that's had effects in the wines. The vine, you know, we're cultivating vine, but the vine doesn't make fruit for our pleasure. It's a question of uh, surviving and bringing as much energy around the seeds. When the vine doesn't have the stress to have this survival instinct, it doesn't bring much concentration around, around, around the pips, the seeds, and uh, then you're losing, you're losing the complexity. Same thing with the stem. We're talking of all cluster. If you have too much nitrogen, uh, this stem, because the, the stem will be more like uh, you know, green, uh, fluorescent, and uh, that's when you can get greenness to the wine. So it's always a question of, of balance. The vine needs to be in balance, but also a bit stressed before achieving the ripeness uh, of the fruit. Just to speak about vineyards a little bit more, something you've been working on is trimming later or hedging later after flowering, and then sometimes folding, so not hedging or trimming. It's a big question at the moment. I don't know exactly how to take the warmer weather uh, with that side. It's true that in the past, so I was tending to trim as high as possible, as late as possible. We've done a few non-trimming. So, uh, you know, with single post, a bit like in Cotroti, so no more wire, single post, to see where it could go. To also prepare maybe uh, the idea of like going on much higher density, like 20,000 vines uh, per hectare, uh, with a kind of full plantation, not in row. Uh, I was asking myself about the landscape we've got, you know, you're going to Burgundy, it seems the tradition, you know, you have 10,000 vine an hectare, all the row are planted one meter apart. So that's a post-phylloxeric landscape. Uh, they've done well at the time. Huh? Dr. Guyot was uh, in safe Burgundy with an organic way of uh, fighting phylloxera. Huh? We're just grafting. It's, uh, it was better than uh, using uh, chemicals on the soil. But, you know, is it the best way? It's done quite well, but we're only getting the secondary effect of it. Today, you know, it's only 100 years later. We're talking of Claude Zepno replanting in the 30s. Uh, we're only in 2019, so it's not even 100 years. It's not much. It's not much. So, wondering, you know, if we can maybe planting like it was before in full. I'm not the only one. Huh? There's, there's also other growers, uh, such as Olivier Lamy, doing it. And uh, bah, la Loubise Le Roi, you know, we're always keeping an eye on, uh, on what she's doing in the vineyards. Today, my, my question is, one of our problems is we, we're rising up in sugar. I don't think we will be able to keep it at 12, 12.5 like we used to, but I'm not keen of, on making wine at 15% of alcohol. And uh, I'm not sure that having more leaves is, is the answer. I'm re-questioning myself at the moment. And I'm not saying trimming lower is the way. The non-trimming is, is an interesting path, but not too high. Let's see, you know, we gain from our experience, but we don't have the answers yet. So some of the things you've told me in the past is that if you keep the canopy and you don't hedge or trim in cold years, you can have more exposure to mildew because you have less airflow. But on warm years, you can have two quick sugars because you have more leaves, which are the motor yeah. of ripening. That's why we haven't answered the question yet. We planted two young vines uh, like two years ago, and I want them to perform in 50 years' time. Hopefully, we planted the right clone, but they were more like later ripeness, and uh, so not, not the ideal maybe for the moment, but hopefully in 50 years' time. 
it will work. What have you observed as other potential things you need to be looking at on the vineyard side when it comes to climate change? It's a very large subject because we're not sure about how it will change. Warmer is one thing, but the rain average is about the same, but it doesn't fall at the same time. So that's uh, we will learn bit by bit. But I think we, we, we definitely need to start to start experimenting. So we have to keep an eye on wood disease, I think. The way we're pruning, we see different way of pruning coming in. Again, it's long term. It's long term. So we should never think... Uh, Never think uh, short term. You know, like Thai pulsar is definitely one of the ways to fight against wood disease. Which is a kind of pruning where you... You respect the, the sap flow. You don't create a necrosis, you know, on the, on the sap flow, where actually fungus can develop. So that's for us, but it's, it's, it's going back to the nursery too, you know, on, on the way, the way the grafting and where the old uh, English grafting is coming back. Also, new way of grafting. It's moving on every, you know, every side of the the profession. But it's like everything, you know, like they were thirty years ago. You know, some some rootstock were like uh, seems to be the best, and uh, twenty five years later, you know, uh, the vines are dying. And today we say, Whoa, what's happening? It was, I mean, that was a very qualitative rootstock, and suddenly the vines are dying, and uh, we were not aware of it. But in some way, these questions are related so when you talk about trimming or not trimming you know that can provide more shadow for more leaves on the fruit and you've spoken to me about the difference between sunlight versus heat and how those two things are different when it comes to grapes yeah the vine doesn't especially need heat to uh, ripe if you have a heat wave what we will see is like more dehydration and uh and concentration by dehydration we need a bit of juice huh, in grapes huh? uh, because if you have too much skin, especially uh, with Pinot, it uh, could be a problem. The light is the most important because every plant got its like uh, natural uh, intern clock with light. And uh, what's the biggest difference is with warmer weather, we have a earlier bud burst. We can have risk of frost, early frost. But when I've learned, you know, in, uh, in burgundy flowering, where usually from 10th of June to mid-June, so uh, just before the equinox, which means all the ripeness cycles of the classic 100 days, huh? we're always saying 100 days from flowering to picking, which, which is true, huh? usually always worked. It's more like a question of like uh, amount of light. Uh, when the flowering is mid-May or late May, then the, the vines will get a big part of its cycle on the longest day. And uh, suddenly, yeah, you have more light, and uh, the hundred days is uh, is could work if you have very bad weather in August. But at the moment, uh, it's not it's not the case. I remember in two thousand three, you know, walking in the vineyard, and everybody were on holiday, and uh, I just bought my house, so I had to stay, and uh, worked one week in the house. You know, first week of August, I went back to the vineyards because I had to take some tools at the domain. You know, I left the vineyards, the fruit were starting to change color, and one week later, it was all dark and black. And uh, I picked up a berry, and it was quite sweet. And we were mid-August. I said, whoa, you know, what's, what's going on? So there's something strange happening. And uh, I called, you know, the Institute because at the time, we still have the Bande Vendange. They were all coming back 25th of August. No one was there. 
I've done my own ripeness sample and I say, whoa, you know, that's 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 getting a bit crazy there. <laughs> because in Burgundy, it's regulated when you can start picking, and that's called the Bend of Vendage. At the time, yeah. Now it's not official, but uh, we a bit of a panic and uh, cross Michel Lafarge in the vineyards, and uh, Michel said, you know, really enjoy this harvest because you will live only one time and harvest in August in your life. And uh, that was in 2003, and I think since 2003 we've done, uh, we started seven times in August. But, you know, we, we're getting used to it. We adapt ourselves to it. I think we need to be careful, actually, the change of balance on the fruit and, and work, work a different way. It's not the same way when you work Pinot at 3.3 pH and nothing can happen. Today, we, I mean, like in 18, we picked some fruit at uh, 3.7, 3.8. So more what I've seen in the new world than what we, we used to. But it doesn't change that the wines are gorgeous in balance. Because something you've expressed to me in the past is that if the fruit ripens too quick for Pinot, then the phenolics are not ripe. Yeah, it, you have two types of ripeness. You have physiological and phenolic ripeness, which is usually one of the issues with young vine. That's why uh, at Claude Zepno, with the younger vine, we were making Pomar Village for a while uh, because... Easy to achieve, you know, sugar ripeness and acidity ripeness. Then the phenol are not always uh, at the peak of, of ripeness. When we roll down, usually it's the opposite, you know, phenolic ripeness uh, before physiological ripeness. This balance is super important. On my experiment of uh, non-trimming and, and high, high canopy, I started to have that problem. And it was in cooler year, actually, huh? where I was producing lots of sugar. But the phenolics were a bit later. That's for Pinot, of course. 2018 was quite interesting on that side because I took the challenge. You know, sometimes we're looking at the analysis of like the ripening sample. I'm always tasting. I'm not. I'm not looking at the analysis saying wait, that need to be picked. But some of them, like uh, let's say, if you look at what the lab was sending, you said, well, you know, pick. Imagine I'm, I'm, I'm on my consultant life, you know, they're sending me uh, the analysis from uh, Chile to Burgundy. I said, guys, you know, pick, pick, pick. But going in the vineyards, tasting the fruit, the skin were not ripe. And we were already at 13. So the physiological ripeness was there, but the phenolic was not there. And then he said, whoa, you know what? Where are we going? And uh, so for a couple of vineyards, we picked, we picked later with very high sugar. But the phenolics are ripe, and the wines doesn't show the alcohol. So that's, as I said earlier on, you know, I'm not keen for 15. I'm not keen for 15 at all. But uh, I think we'll, we will learn a lot about with this vintage and see. see but we, we, we definitely need to, to move. I think that the biggest challenge is everything was, is long-term in vineyards, as I was saying. But what happened at the moment is going super fast. And... Uh, we have, we have to react. It's faster than the agricultural cycle. It's much faster. It's much faster than, than, and also than our understanding. Well, lots of challenge. I'm thinking a lot at the moment. But you know what? I don't know exactly which direction to take. So it's probably multi-direction. And we will try our best to find our path. So much of what you said about the difference between phenolic ripeness and sugar ripeness... So much of that conversation sounded to me like the kind of thing I hear from people in the new world. Do you know what I mean? Like I, that's a I very know, common conversation mean. there. Not something I usually associate with Burgundy. It's always a problem I faced when I was working outside of Burgundy and uh, 
when you're traveling and you work on all those regions, you're learning a lot because the challenge is greater. And when you are back in Burgundy, you see sometimes, I mean, you see, you see I mean, some people working and say, well, you don't, you don't understand the chance we have here. Because uh, even with like uh, not much knowledge, I mean, the terroir will express itself and by itself, which is nice. Huh? But uh, when you're starting to have like a big variation, it's much more challenging and it's where you have to be really, really careful. And uh, yeah, yeah, you, you're right. We have a challenge, I mean, especially with the last, not 17, but 18, remind me a lot of uh, what I've seen in the, in the new world. So the thing about 18, which you've referred to a few times now, which was very hot vintage, is that often there was little malic acidity. And what you've explained to me in the past is that malic acidity becomes lactic bacteria through malolactic conversion. And then the lactic bacteria becomes sediment, becomes lees. And so if you don't have a lot of malic, then you don't have a lot of lactic, then you don't have a lot of lees. There's two things. Malic acid is a strong acid, huh? it's green apple. Lactic acid is a creamy one. Again, by tradition, you know, we, we learned, let's say, the average uh, malic acid, especially when you do harvest uh, mid-September, is more 4 to 5 grams. So with that level, you're really talking about fermentation. Huh? It's fermenting usually for one, two weeks or sometimes more, but you have a real change in terms of pH, acidity, the creaminess of the lactic is going around the tartric, which usually is also higher on, uh, at that level. What happened in the last few vintages, uh, there were no more malic acid. So no more malic, so let's say one gram or less uh, means no lactic, means mallow is done right after the sugar, sometimes with the sugar, which means the aging is done uh, only with, uh, with yeast leaves, which is a good thing actually, because the bacterial leaves are not the best. That's why after malolactic, usually we are racking. Bacteria are heavier than, than yeast, so it's the leaves which are going really at the bottom of the barrel. And uh, the dead yeast huh, uh, are more the fine leaves. So in the last couple of years, we are actually only aging on fine leaves, which is better. We're able to do no racking. Sometimes we will rack if we need to, but usually the racking is done after alcoholic fermentation, so when the wine is not even in barrel. And the fact that you don't have this creamy lactic acid around the tartric, and the tartric level is slightly lower, actually the balance doesn't change. The balance is good, and uh, it leaves more expression to the tartric acid, which is more uh, zesty, citrusy. And uh, to be fair, I like it. I like it a lot. But we never seen that before, because you always had lactic. Uh, with white, you can block the mallow and you can have the malic. but that's the first time, you know, we are, we are able to see acid balance without much lactic or without much malic. And uh, it's something new. It's one of the positive signs. So 15 years ago, you will have asked me the same question. I will have said, you know, like the old growers said, you know, with experience, the later is the mallow, the better it is for the wine. Which means in the past, we were probably keeping the wine on fine leaves for, you know, nine months. Then you have mallow lactic starting in spring for a couple of weeks, and then you're racking after a year, and then you have only six months on fine leaves at the end of the aging. Today, the last couple of vintage, we edge the wine maybe only 16 months instead of 18, or 17 months instead of 18, so not a big difference, but only on fine leaves. 
and uh, actually 16 months post Malo, which it is much longer than what we we ever done. And uh, I love it, and I love it for both color, white and red, and that's one of the things which is amazing me with with those one vintage because I will never have you know uh, put a coin on the white because. With the reds, the phenol, we're talking of the phenolic ripeness. And uh, if you have a good phenolic ripeness, it works with warmer weather. But, you know, the whites with warmer weather, it's not always my uh, my cup of tea. Uh, and 17, great wine, good freshness. And uh, 18, again, and super juicy fruit when the Pinot, you know, had a lack of juice and, uh, and uh, high concentration of skin. But the white seems to cope very well with, uh, with what's happening outside. And that's, for the moment, a mystery to me. As the climate has changed, you, and I don't know if these two things are related, but in general, you've moved to a winemaking technique of doing less extraction on reds. Yeah, it's, it's global. Maybe it's climate change. It's also, I've changed also my taste. I was saying it's a life journey. You know, it's, uh, I've started in the wine Gently at the age of 15, I'm 44 today. My test has changed, you know. Uh, I was I was asking myself, you know, s- millions of questions uh, in the past. I'm still asking myself a lot of questions, but they are easier. And I'm trying to to select, you know, the best one and to achieve an answer. When before, I think I never, uh, I was asking myself another question before I had the answer of the previous one. I like elegance now. I like elegant wine more than powerful. And when you can get both, it's great. But let's say I was more on the extraction, which was probably the move also at the, in the nineties. When today, you know, I'm, I like when you have more elegant style for both, also uh, Chardonnay and, and, and Pinot Noir. So I'm more working in in terms of uh, infusion. At the same time, the technology are a bit different. The question about distemming or old cluster. Uh, 30 years ago is not the same than today. Today you are able to destem and preserve the whole berry and you can do fermentation inside the berry without the stem. And uh, that's a big change. So you're able to preserve those spiciness and floral aroma uh, without having the greenness of the stem. What I like with wine is when you can't guess, you know, is it all cluster? Is it stem? And has this question is always coming to every kind of tasting. I love playing now with that in the salon, you know, guess. Tell me, what do you think? And it, it's so hard, actually, to guess. I've got QV, you know, going to 80% all cluster, sometimes 100%, some are all distem. There's no rules, you know, it could be all cluster on Bourgogne Rouge and, uh, and all distem on, on Grand Cru. It's what we see on the sorting table, which decide uh, what we will do. What you like is whole berry, whether it's whole cluster with stems or whole berry that's been destemmed. And it used to be that the destemmers either broke the berry or didn't get the full stem. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so now you can do more intercellular. So that allows you to destem and keep a whole berry, which you've combined with punching down at the beginning of the fermentation less. You used to punch down more at the beginning, and now you don't because you want to keep the berries whole. Of course. If you work hard to preserve the whole berry, you won't plunge at the beginning. We let the fermentation start naturally and uh, it's going to go slowly inside the berry. The juice, which is there because by the weight, you know, the berry at the bottom are, are crushed naturally. We will wait for the end of the fermentation of this juice, so more closer from one farden. And then we start to plunge to let some of, of the juice from the berry, you know, getting out. 
So about halfway through, or at least when there's some more alcohol as opposed to just sugar, yeah. you start to punch down. There's no extraction with sugar. The extraction is starting with alcohol. So there's no need of plunging before. When you only got the sugar, you know, the extraction is, is a very, very, very little. And this is a change from what you were doing in the 90s when you were looking for more extraction and the equipment was different. Yeah. 99, Contarmont arrived. Uh, they were like uh, the distemer of the time, which was Demoisy at the time. It was probably one of the only builders. It was all equipped with a crusher. The speed was about 10 tons an hour. There were no sorting table huh, at the time. So basically, you know, it's like a, a sorting in the vineyards. But even if you think the fruit are clean, you know, each time it, we picked ourselves, you know, some vineyards and we picked perfectly and uh, we put the fruit on the sorting table. And there's always... 2% of fruit that we are rejecting because what you see in the vineyard is not what you see on the sorting table, you know, with like special lights and everything. And uh, crushing, then it was like a must pump, you know, taking the, the must to the tank. So basically it was like um, mashed fruit going into the tank. So we had skin on one side, juice on, on one side and pips on the other side. So not exactly the same. Uh, so that's what we were calling distemming in the 90s. In 2001, I bought uh, my first distemmer, like proper distemmer. It was working well, much better, but then we were using like little conveyor belt to go into the tank. Big difference in terms of tannin between the 99. So the equipment like made a big difference on the style of the wine. And then... I was not happy with this distemmer, so I bought another one. And then I think today it's my sixth one in 15 years' time. But I think I found the right one. I really love it. And it, it's really like a four Pinot Noir. If you're a builder of distemmer, you know, many wineries got many varieties. So it needs to be able to be adaptable to different kinds of variety. And you don't distem Syrah or Cabernet the same way as, uh, as Pinot Noir. But uh, voilà, my, my new one is not like a Demoisy. There's no crusher, of course. And it can work at the max of one ton an hour, and uh, which is perfect after a sorting table. Usually we're working six to 800 kilograms an hour. Back at Comptamon, back in the 90s and early 2000s, you were doing a week of cold soak. And how do you feel about cold maceration now? I don't, I don't do it. I don't do it anymore. Uh, first by experience, because uh, I've learned of, uh, of what I've done. And um, I let the yeast starting themselves now. The only things I will do is, of course, if you pick in August, uh, you might pick with warmer temperature. So we will cool down the fruit to either uh, naturally outside, uh, if the nights are cold, or uh, on a cold room. And uh, we'll bring them down to 14, 15, so not cold. Huh? But just to avoid a peak of temperature during fermentation. So the first we will pick at the winery will take probably a week to start. So they will stay for a week at 15. But then the last we will pick, when I will pick, you know, the last Gevray Chambertin, for example, uh, my Savigny will be almost at the end of fermentation at the same time. So basically, after one or two days, it's starting to ferment and it's fine. Voilà. I don't want to inoculate, you know, with uh, even if it's wild yeast I've had prepared. I let them go. I let them go. I'm more playing on, uh, on maceration after fermentation. That's a big change, because huh? same thing, huh? when I learned, you know, like uh, fermentation were achieved, you had to hurry up to press because you were losing the carbon dioxide. There was no way to protect the skin uh, or to close the tank, wooden open tank. And as uh, soon as it was pressed, uh, of course, mixing pre-run and pressed wine and straight into barrel. 
uh, with all the sediment. Today, we can seal the tank, we're preserving the natural carbon dioxide on top, and then we start the infusion. And uh, we see when it's ready. So some, some maceration could be only uh, two weeks total, you know, from picking to pressing, and some could be three and a half weeks. And it's, it all depends on, on how they go, and uh, there's no rules. So everything is done by taste. In the morning, you know, the team doesn't know what they're going to do. First, we're taking sample, we're tasting, and we decide. And for red, which is not true for white, you do vertical pressing. And so for white, you do horizontal pneumatics. So why in particular do you like to do vertical press for red? There were no question. The first time I've tried the, the vertical press, the quality of the press was just, just fantastic. First, you know, you, you have to understand it's a single press. You know, we won't rotate the skin or so there's no um, mixing or mashed up and the piston will go gently on top but it's going on in a single time and uh, you're only extracting the best of the skin and with the cake it's making a natural um, screen or filtration and uh, it's like super clean it's uh, when I've tried it I mean I straight away you know bought it then uh, we tried white. We tried white also. Huh? It's also the old way huh? with white. You have, it's, you have to take your time because at uh, the time of extraction, you have to remove the, the fruit uh, many times, what we call a rebesh. We've done it with Saroma. We've done uh, one in vertical, one in horizontal. We'll see in a couple of years, you know, if one is aging better than the other one or if one is getting oxidized before the other one. But I'm very... Uh, Happy with the pneumatic press uh, with whites. I think it's a question of, uh, of learning how to use it. Uh, it did bring lots of issues, especially when they arrive mid-90s. And uh, if you use it, you know, without programming yourself and adapting yourself to the fruit and you just reproducing the same things every year, of course, you can face, you can face issues. Uh, but if you, if you learn how to use it, I won't go back to something else. Because we can create great sediment with, uh, with pneumatic press. To me, that's not the problem. It's more how we're using it, the problem. In red, how do you feel about topics like racking, CO2 retention, and lease contact in barrel? Racking, I think, is an important part. But it has to be done at the right time. Nothing should be, should be a recipe. If you have very low, low malic level, if the lease doesn't get reductive, I don't think there's, there's a need to rack. When I've learned, you know, when I've, everywhere I've been working, when we were racking, there were 20 liters of lease per barrel, you know, like it was heavy and reductive. And uh, when uh, it was getting close from bottling, you know, we were like uh, getting the eggs from the farm and we were putting two white eggs per barrel. And that was the way to do it. And... We were not experimenting before. Should we put one egg, two eggs, one and a half, one and a quarter? No, it was two. And, uh, you know, sometimes it was working, sometimes not. Today, we, we're always experimenting. We're trying before, you know, just to, just to check. Racking, it's only if it needs to be done. Something we've done in the last couple of years, which I really like, is not putting the wine straight into barrels. because. With the last couple of years, you know, we had drier, drier summer, uh, which means not much rains to clean the fruit. Uh, so probably more retention of sulfur and copper uh, on the fruit, uh, plus 
dust and dirt. We do it for white. Huh? When we press the white, we sediment the white. We do very light sedimentation, but always at the bottom of the tank. The sediment you don't want to retain, you know, they're, they're brown, they're healthy. And... But with the reds now, we're doing the same thing. Pressing, it's staying two weeks to one month in tank. And actually, in a way, it's, it's like how racking. And then we're able to, to get only the finest leaves into the barrel. It's more, that, it's more the adaptation to the weather condition we had. We were somehow forced to do it. And uh, yeah, I really like the technique, something I haven't thought you know, before. It seems to work quite well. And since we're doing it, we rack much less, much less. And I think in terms of aromatic, there's much more definition in, into the wine too. But that said, you know, like Nuit Saint-Georges-Autoré, for example, we racked it in the middle and, uh, and sometimes we rack only one barrel and sometimes two. And uh, we have variation. They're all individual. They all got different characters. They all had their history inside their own village. Again, you know, no recipe at all. How do you feel about CO2 retention? As we don't do racking at the moment, we're keeping lots of CO2. I like uh, keeping uh, high gas. And many, many times, you know, on my wine, you, will, you, will, you could feel a bit of fizziness uh, when they're young. We're tending to bottle with high carbon dioxide. We usually like uh, 100 milligrams above, you know, what we used to have. So we, let's say I, lo- I love bottling when we are on the edge of perception. Uh, so, you know, when they're young, you know, yeah, you, you will feel it. It's lifting some aromatics and uh, I really love it. And uh, so it's not at all a re-fermentation. Right? It's, we do it on purpose. And I like it. You know, it, it's natural. We, it's helping us uh, avoiding uh, using uh, too much sulfur. But uh, it's to preserve the wine, you know, from... Because, of course, you know, like uh, in terms of microbiology, sometimes you need the oxygen and on top, you know, for acetic bacteria, thing like that. So that's why we're using sulfur. Huh? It's an antioxidant, but it's an antiseptic first. So uh, carbon dioxide is, is the way to low down sulfur level. And uh, on top of that, as you know, especially for the whites, we're using screw cap or DM as an answer to filler with cork. And uh, with those type of closure, you need to use less sulfur, much less sulfur. Specifically regarding that point, one of the things that you've pointed out to me in the past is that in the 80s and 90s, early 90s, people were using less sulfur. Then there was the Premox situation. Sulfur levels went up as a response to this. And so they were adding more sulfur to try to preserve the wines. But now levels have often come back down again. Yeah, it, it went quite high huh, at the same time. So it's, uh, I think it, it's a good thing that it's, um, if it's going a bit down. First, I mean, I was talking of screw capodium, but uh, the coke production of all, you know, reacted to uh, the issues uh, that they had. Uh, I don't think it's over. I think with sulfur, you know, you were talking of the 80s. Uh, so most of the time, also, the technique of measuring sulfur were not the same. Uh, and also the technique of using sulfur into barrels. For me, to keep my barrels, they don't see much sulfur in my barrels because most of the time they're full. And uh, I think with the, the sulfur level, I don't want to change my wine for the closure. That's why I'm, I switched the cork to something else. Uh, I was fed up of like, using 35, 40 parts of free sulfur, which uh, to me was totally changing the identity of, of the wine. And most of the time it was working if like, let's say the cork was doing a part of his job, so losing a bit of sulfur, fine. But if 
as we were all, always looking for top cork, if the cork is like really doing the perfect seal, then you retain too much. I don't see myself, you know, like taking a gamble and, you know, with the cork. But I don't see myself also having like a triple security and, uh, and going to high sulfur and say, well, if the cork is not working well, at least I've got enough sulfur. The variation in terms of quality of cork is, is so great, but it's difficult to take a decision. You do barrel ferments of different size for white. You also do foudre, which are large ovals of wood. And that's kind of a typical old traditional style Macanay fermentation to do Chardonnay and foudre like that. And now you're experimenting also with whites fermented in steel, like tank. And that would be something that you would find in Chablis, but not typically in the Cote d'Or. What are your thoughts about that topic in general? Alors, stainless steel, we found it in Chablis, but it's, you know, it's not a tradition. Huh? Chablis used to be in barrels, but when, when the vineyards extended, uh, many people, you know, were not growers and suddenly became growers. And the easiest way to get equipped was a stainless steel. Now it's the style, but uh, that happens in the, in the last 30 years. Uh, food, we still found some in, in Macon, which uh, I think they kept that tradition, but it used to be seen also, uh, also in, uh, in Côte d'Or. Uh, just the only issue is that, uh, you know, uh, Phylloxera came through that, then First World War, then, uh, you know, um, economical crisis plus Second World War. So the skill went lost and also the big maison, the big negos were ruling, ruling the, ruling the system. When we're talking of tradition, we're talking of uh, 228 liters, so what we call the pièce. How are we using the pièce because it's the best volume? to edge, you know, Pinot and Chardonnay. Why exactly is the reason we have those type of, uh, of barrels? Usually, the historical reason is purely because it's practical. Uh, it's an easy volume uh, to move for one person, to get out of the cellar, you know, through the steps. So all the business were made in barrel. And uh, most of the time, you know, there were lots of uh, éleveurs uh, which were doing the élevage in food. And then they were only after using again the uh, pièce to ship the wine. And they were sending the barrels to Paris, to Brussels, to London, and uh, getting some empty one back. So I'm just going back to what used to be made. The main decision was also because of having higher alcohol, mean higher extraction from the wood. Today we're able to make wine with more purity, where you have more definition of flavor. So why, why bringing another layer of flavor and tannin, which doesn't belong to the wine? I'm not saying you don't need new oak. There was definitely a period of time where Burgundy used too much oak. Uh, at the same time, if we look back, Burgundy was definitely needed at the time, you know, to clean out the cellar and to change the barrel because uh, you can't keep the barrels forever because you can have some contamination which are not great. I'm thinking of Bretanomyces, for example. And uh, so... What happened in the 90s was not that bad, you know, it's, uh, it cleaned out a lot of, uh, of dirty things from the cellar. But then there were a bit of loss of identity, tasting the same thing. You know, when you're a negociant, uh, you can see from in every village some identity of wine in the village. But most of the time, because one cooper is like almost working with all the same grower. And uh, it will be the same with nursery and vegetal material, you know. Uh, and somehow, you know, like the barrel maker is start to be part of the identity of 
the taste of the village. Uh, me, I'm getting fruit from every villages, and I, I see it a slightly different way. So I, I want to use wood for the micro-oxidation of the wine, but I don't want to use wood to give an identity to my wine. So most of the time, first, I will mix different coverage when I can. And uh, with the variation of content, so it's mostly to have less wood contact within the volume of wine. So we will make differentiation, of course, between a Grand Cru, which suits well with, uh, with regular barrels. I'd love to make food with the butter, but I don't produce enough anyway. But um, also the second aspect of what I'm doing, you were talking of oval shape and round shape, is uh, to work also on the shape of content and see what is the effect on the movement of lees and what's the effect on the final wine. We don't do lee steering as lee steering, you know, to get the wine fatter. We will practice lee steering to encourage the yeast at the end of the fermentation to achieve the fermentation because with native yeast, we can't talk about quick fermentation, huh? but we'd rather if they take two months or less than six months. And if we can help them at the end to get a bit more oxygen and to achieve the fermentation, we, we, we will do it. What we notice is definitely with round shape, you know, the sedimentation is uh, quite fast. So as we, we won't touch the lees after, you know, the wine will, will stay like that and you'll have a bit of movement of lees depending on the, on the pressure, uh, atmospheric pressure. In oval, oval shape, we have almost a constant, like a natural lee steering, you know. Uh, you're also preserving more carbon dioxide, so we're back to the carbon dioxide. And... Uh, it could be interesting some years. What I like today is mixing the two, round and oval, if I can. Mostly on the village cuvee or Bourgogne. The mix is quite interesting on preserving the freshness. I think it could work fine if you do three years of aging. Uh, it's tending to preserve a lot of the primary flavor. Uh, oval could be too much if it's like a year with a lack of acidity. But it could be super interesting if you have a good acidity but a high alcohol level. So. If I will be able to choose, you know, from one year to another, uh, that will be ideal. But we can't keep the barrels uh, empty, so usually I'm mixing. Something that you've told me is that because of that idea about ripeness, you have to be very careful when you pick when you're going to use foudre. Yeah, but again, it's like the closure. You shouldn't adapt. It's not because you have food that you need to pick earlier. You need to pick when it's ripe. So imagine the year doesn't suit to foudre. I still have the possibility to buy, you know, a wine that I will not sell, but just to preserve my food for one year. I've done it in 16, you know, with the heavy, heavy frost. I could only fill one third of my barrels. But instead of losing those barrels, because I reached a point, you know, when I started, I was buying secondhand barrels to avoid having too much new oak. But even if you buy from, you know, like good friends or top estate, they never at your taste. Then you're bringing yeast from outside. and. So today, all the barrels, you know, have been purchased by me. And uh, in 16, I bought like a truck of Macon and we filled up the barrels with them, then sold the wine after when we were needing the barrel. And I think I was quite happy with that. So if the vintage is not good enough for the food, you know, I won't use them. So you're getting a different kind of lease contact in those ovals in the food. Mm -hmm. And how is that affecting reduction? You know, so far, we never suffered from reduction in the food. And strangely, because actually we have bigger volume, uh, the 1,200 liters, so uh, it's a bit more than five barrels. So we should 
let's say, if we were thinking of reduction, it's where we should have it. I think the reduction is more due to the kind of fermentation. Early on, you were talking of nitrogen. It, nitrogen is a big part of um, the quality of the fermentation because the yeast are not always taking the same cycle. Huh? They don't especially uh, eat sugar to make alcohol. They can do a different cycle. and they, Naturally, they're producing sulfur, but it depends what kind of molecule they will produce. Good reduction, bad reduction, but usually linked with sulfur and lack of nitrogen. We, we're really taking care of like the must analysis we have to understand how, how vineyards works. And we're always trying to recorrect in the vineyards if we have a problem in the must. So for you, what's the difference between good reduction and bad reduction? The good reduction is uh, it's when it's uh, reversible. The bad one, it's uh, when it's part of the wine. That's the main difference. And it's the same thing with oxidation. Huh? This variation between red and ox, so reductive. In, uh, so that's again during all the aging of the wine. It shouldn't be always like a high protection. We're talking of sulfur you know, against oxygen. You need some. And sometimes you can be slightly oxidative. But it has to be the right balance. If the type of molecule of sulfur you, you're creating are fixed, you're on the bad reduction. You know what is a bad reduction? It's when it, it's really going to the, to the eggs, the bad eggs. But you see good reduction as linked to nitrogen deficient must. No, usually the, the good reduction is more, is more linked with the lees. It's more the lees sedimentation and the amount of lees. You know, using native yeast, so if I'm talking about a two-month fermentation or two weeks, it's very different. Because in two weeks, great. It means the yeast of the year, you know, perform very well. In terms of aromatic, it could be interesting, but it means you didn't have too many generations of yeast. And then, therefore, your, your amount of sediment is uh, lower. When you have a longer fermentation, you have many more generations of yeast. And uh, then usually you have, you have more, uh, more fine lees. And it's when you can start to have like nice reduction. It's more the lees which will bring the reduction. What's your experience doing those ferments in steel? I know it's just been one year that you've been trying that. Yeah. It's something I had in mind. And uh, to be really fair with you, I had to do it in 18 because I, I didn't have enough barrels. Uh, we tried actually two tanks. Uh, one is back in barrels since uh, well, February, because the reduction was going to great. To do that, you know, it's because I've been to Chablis, I've got friends in Chablis. We talked about, a lot about, you know, uh, what to do, what to avoid, because when you're on a very close tank and like stainless, uh, you have to be careful of the quality of the lease. So one tank, not happy, and the other tank is brilliant. It's fantastic, and it's suiting so well the vintage. and. I want to check a bit with, uh, with stainless just because it's not my style, but I shouldn't close the door to it, especially if we have warmer vintage. And uh, it's more a matter to have the balance. So in the end, you know, it's the Bourgogne, it's going to be 10% of the cuvee. It's a matter to learn. The fact of having bigger volume also, it seems to work better too, because the variation of temperature is uh, not as great than in a barrel we have much less variation in the temperature of the wine. When it comes to white, are you de-stemming or are you keeping stems before it goes to press? Generally speaking, all bunch, all cluster and not crushed. Uh, the question of crushing is 
it's like what I was saying with the red. It shouldn't be a recipe and uh, destemming, not destemming, so depending on the grapes. Today, I'm definitely like from 2019, uh, we will have a crusher. If we're reaching the type of maturity we had, I think we need to use the skin a bit more. But not everywhere. So it's not going to be like a systematic thing. But uh, I think it could be useful in some type of, uh, of maturity. So that's definitely coming in. What do you see as the benefit of keeping stems? It's more for the drainage. So when it goes into the press, it breaks Maybe up. With pneumatic, we're able to do program without spinning uh, the press. And we need the stem there to get more sediment and more phenol on the wine. I, I, I never tried actually, you know, like wine, which like I love, you know, with, uh, which we made the, this stem in white. How long do whites typically spend in barrel? We do around 18 months. That's the average. We don't bottle everything at the same time. We're bottling when, it, when it's ready. There's no rule. Usually, you know, like we, you were talking about the white, but let's say a general rule, we're bottling white before reds. With the 17, we will finish our bottling with the whites. And usually, we starting bottling Bourgogne, then the village, Premier Cru and Grand Cru. And uh, in 17, uh, one of the last bottling will be with village wine. And uh, I don't restrain myself saying, well, we can't bottle after 12 months. We always done 18 months. So uh, there's maybe a couple of 18, which will be bottled uh, by harvest time because they're tasting so great now. And uh, Malolactic, we're done straight after. But let's see what's happening in, in September. But we talked about very deep subject uh, with like, global warming, warmer weather, you know, a type of closure. But first of all, there's a very simple thing to change in our region. First, picking dates. Of course, when you have your team, you, 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 have, to use, you have to use it, but sometimes you have to stop harvest if the vines are not ready. And uh, we're talking of 100 days after flowering. That's changing a bit, so... You can't decide your date of picking in June. You know approximately when it's, when it's going to be. But then you decide really at the last minute. And for me, it's the hardest point, you know, deciding when to start and which vine. And, uh, and anyway, you only know if you were right uh, three months later. But I think we need to manage things a bit differently today by really like picking the vine when it's ready and not because you have a team. Same thing with bottling. You don't bottle because the next harvest is coming, and uh, you don't you don't bottle uh, everything at the same time, because for someone it's be too late, for someone it's gonna be too early. You have to wait for the for the right time. And easy rule, huh? very easy, very simple. But that's changing a lot the style and the quality of the wine. You put the whites in the steel before you bottle them. Well, usually yes, not every year, but in fifteen when we picked. Uh, when I looked at the wine and the acidity level, I said, well, there's no way, with higher alcohol, there's no way we can age those wine for 18 months in barrel. So uh, straight away after, I ordered like 16 stainless steel tank. And uh, just before the next harvest, all the 15 were in tank for the last six, seven months. So big investment, but it did worth it because I like my 15. We were tending to, with the stainless steel, preserve a bit of a you know, reduction, which should swell to the wine, uh, and uh, they have some freshness. 
In 16, we were not really needing to use the stainless steel before bottling, so we only used them to prepare them for bottling. Uh, in 17, I used them. So there's many wine which done only one year in barrel and the rest in, uh, in stainless. Do you think that white burgundy in general is more approachable at a younger age than it used to be in the 70s? Uh, but in the 70s, you know, I was too young to try them young. So, uh, <laughs> But I can tell you about the 90s. Yes, probably. Probably at the same time, at the same time, we were so much educated to drink wine when they were older. And I still love that, you know. I, I like my wine when they're 20 years or more. But uh, we were not looking for for young wine. But we're definitely making wine with because we are so in control of many factors. There's definitely more purity on the wine. I'm not making wine to be drink young. It's not the point. I'm pretty sure they will age pretty well. But what I call a good wine is a wine which tastes well all the time. And a good vintage, great wine, you could enjoy it young. You could enjoy it, you know, with a bit of age. And you can probably enjoy it in 40, 50 years' time. Uh, sometimes, you know, like I remember doing tasting and early 90s and the first vintage I bought was 1990. And tough vintage in some area. But I remember like, you know, it was a lot of money for me, even if the wine was much cheaper at the time. Uh, but as a student, it was a lot. And uh, people saying, well, you know, it's a bit hard now, but you will see in 20 years' time, you know, it's going to be great. And uh, I tasted the first bottle after 20 years' time. Uh, still hard. And, uh, and I opened one recently, and it's still very hard. <laughs> and I think it will never come, because the, the tannin will never get ripe on those wines. I think that the true great wine is, is the wine which tastes well all the time. What I love, you know, at the moment is if you work very well, you know, some underrated appellation, you could make beautiful wine, which, which you could approach young, such as Sauce du Ress or Saint-Romain. And you have also the, the other appellation, you know, when you, you're going higher, but if it's a Meursault, if I'm keeping on the white or Puligny, keep them. I'm making wine to be kept. Let's talk about some of the crews that you work with. There's a number, but some that have really stood out for me, just to move back to red for a second, is uh, Volnay Cairé. It's not because of me, but it's good. Huh? Cairé, Cairé is the top premier cru of, uh, of Volnay. And uh, you, know, you know what uh, the adage in Volnay is, qui n'a jamais bu de Cairé ne connaît pas Volnay. So who never drank Cairé don't know Volnay. And I think it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty true. Cairé is the king of Volnay, and, uh, and I'm making four different premier cru in Volnay. I made uh, more premier cru in the past with uh, Contarmont. I think I know pretty well the area, but the first time I met Cairé, I said, whoa, you know, here, there's a big difference. And a bit the same feeling than for the first time, you know, you, you, are, you are touching a Grand Cru uh, from Côte de Nuit, where you say, whoa. And... To be fair, you know, it, it's much easier to make wine on those areas than others. So uh, there's no credit to me because most of the time the wine's making it by itself. And whatever is the vintage. I've been lucky enough to be part like of tasting where we, we tasted like many amazing bottles, you know, same day, all the vintages. And uh, I'm talking of the 20s, 30s, 40s. Grand Cru from Côte de Nuit. And each time, you know, on the top three, there is a Volnay. And most of the time, it's a Cairie. 
And if it's not a Kyrie, it's right next door. And uh, this area is like sublime. But Kyrie means, you know, it's the Kai, it's the limestone, and uh, you can really feel it on this wine. And another wine that you make that I like a lot is the Pomar Rougen, which you get from the Haute Rougen. You know, we talk about my uh, my past with Contarmont. Uh, when I left Contarmont in 2014, that was just before harvest, and uh, I really told to myself, I've done 15 vintage of Claude Zepno, and and I said, you know, that's it. I'll never make Pomar anymore. You know, I want to turn the page. And I said anyway, on the one side, you know, if I do Pomar, I'd love to do Rougien. So I've, the only vintage in my life where I haven't done Pomar was 14. And uh, in 15, uh, by chance, huh, I was not looking for Rougien. It just happened to be offered. And uh, it was part of a package with other fruits. And I said, whoa, you know, Rougien. I went to see the vineyards. And actually, it's, this parcel is just above the Rougien bar. So uh, as a joke, we call it Rougien du Milieu. But uh, yeah, it's Rougien haut. You have the bottom of the vineyards looking a bit like the Rougien bar. Then you have more soil on the top, which is Rougien haut. It could be strange, but foot of the slope in Rougien bar, you have less soil than on the mid-slope in the, in the Rougien. And free edge of vine, so you have a, a good diversity. And it's the first time I used... Uh, I was wanting to do Rougien because the first time I used all cluster in Pomar. I always hated all cluster in Claude Zepno, and uh, I was not wanting to bring another layer. And uh, again, you have very different, very different in style and to make much smoother in terms of tannin extraction. And uh, it's a bit like Kairi. Here, there's a real difference. You know, I made a lot of Pomar and uh, Claude Zipno is a great premier cru. You know, uh, it could reach the level of Grand Cru some vintages, but some other vintages is just a good premier cru. And I think that's the, the real difference between Grand Cru and Premier Cru. Grand Cru, whatever is the vintage, should be always at the top. Then, just beneath, you have some top Premier Cru. Maybe, maybe Claude Zepno is part of those. And let's say if, if one has to be a Grand Cru, it could be Rugien, and probably more the bar than the O. So you ask me about O, I think this one is, is well located, but uh, when I see the power it, it could bring and the elegance, and uh, when I can taste, you know, the Rugien, the Rugien bar, it, it's in this area where you have, you have the best. That said, I'm not sure it's reaching the level of, of Volnekaire. It's, uh, let's see where it goes. It's not, I think in the end, it's not very important if Pomar's getting Grand Cru or not. Because what happened in the village, you know, when it, it started to have, uh, you know, this will of uh, having the Grand Cru, I think it was great because it's federate all the growers. And uh, I think it's important because sometimes living in a village is not is not easy, and huh? you always have like the historic little fight, and and that's really bring the village all together. The result about Grand Cru or not is not very important because it did bring lots of good things to Pomar, which uh, I think is changing a lot. It's an appellation which was difficult to understand outside, you know, the two best Cru, and today there's. Many, many, many good producers, and it, it's changing a lot. I think that conversation we had earlier about extraction versus infusion, it seems like doing a little more infusion could be to the benefit of Pomar, because I think the idea here is that the wines are rustic, and like in the market, I mean. Bon, Pomar, the, the geology over there is it's very red soil, more ion oxide. So naturally, we have tannin. There is tannin in Pomar. 
that's why it was important. I think I made better wine in, from 2007 at Contarmont when I was making, when I've started to make wine, you know, from Côte de Nuit with my Negos side. And I, it made me understand differently the style of tannin we could get and we could extract. And to me, the, the key in my winemaking is really in 2007 when I'm starting with other appellation. And you're right, yeah, Pomar already got a lot of tannin. When I was making Claude Zepneau at the beginning, you know, you start the fermentation and suddenly at 4-5% of alcohol, boom, you have like a big mass of tannin coming and then it's, you have another layer, another layer and, uh, and you, have to, you have to deal with that. With most of the other appellation, you are building your structure bit by bit and it's, it's very different. So, Kevin, uh, you're definitely right. You're definitely right. Uh, with pomar, you don't need you don't need to look for extraction. Infusion is is one thing, but definitely the way to treat the harvest. You know, being well equipped, no crusher, good distemer or no distemer if you want to do old bunch. But I think not all the or not all the UD of pomar can afford uh, old bunch. Again, it's going to be another layer of uh, of tannin, which it could work some vintage, but uh, not always. To be smoother in the extraction is an interesting thing in Pomar. You know, that said, it was truly printed in the, in the tradition of making because Pomar, you know, the, the reputation of Pomar was mostly made because those ones were traveling super well. Uh, what we call rusticity today was a quality in the past. And uh, it takes time to change. You mentioned whole cluster there. And one of the things that was really interesting to me we were tasting a Chambol Mousini that you had made once, and you said you tended to destem Chambol because the vine material that's prevalent in the Chambol village tends to, for your taste, be better when it's destemmed. I'm not sure it was with Chambol. Was it with Chambol? That's what I wrote on my notes, but sometimes I'm yeah. wrong about things. <laughs> now, with Chambol, sometimes I'm using, I'm using old punch. Well, maybe I know what you are meaning. I think uh, I was talking about the coverage by village early on, but same thing, after phylloxera, most of the time, you know, you, we were not like, uh, today I'm, I will use nursery, which are more like on the northern part of France because they are free of a flavescence de ray, you know, of the disease, which means they can produce our vine without any insecticide, which is great. So I'd rather have organic plant, you know, from the beginning than, than uh, being in other region, but we can order them from far. Uh, after phylloxera, usually people were doing their own grafting or they had one nursery by village. But you can see that the selection was really made by village. For example, Von Romanet, you know, like beautiful material. But you could see it was coming from the same selection. Chambol, slightly different selection, but usually it's, it's pretty nice. Then in Gevray, different, but different soil too. Huh? But there's definitely like a, a common side to all like the, you know, the oldest vine and uh, the vine which were planted right after. Then when clonal selection arrived, you know, same thing, depending by village, they have uh, that type of clone, that type of clone. So it means that within the technique we're using in, uh, in winemaking per village, yeah, by village, you can usually generalize your winemaking because you are dealing with the same material. And uh, for me, place where I can use easily the most old cluster is definitely Von Romani. Of course, because of the ge geology and the terroir, but because of the material. We're dealing usually with type of Pinot Noir, which are crazy good. And you found them again, most of the time on the northern part of Nuit Saint-Georges, Cause Flagey Chezeau, in Vougeot, 
Uh, Chambord is a mix. And then when you're going north, usually the bunch are getting a bit bigger. I'm talking of generally speaking, uh, of course, you have some great material because you can have maybe some growers from Vaughan who planted in, uh, in Gevray. But for the oldest vine, usually, you know, it, they were using the local material. That was what really struck me when I went to Vaughan for the first time because, you know, so many times in the New World, you see Pinot Noir and the fruit is kind of big, the size of the berry. and some of the Vaughn fruit was so small. I, I'd never seen Pinot Noir that looked like that before. Now, obviously, I've been back, but the first time was really astounding. You make a particularly good Vaughn Romani, Malconsort de Sioux. Yeah, it's a, it's a great place. So, au-dessus de Malconsort, of course, it's got its name from its location. Huh? It's just above the Malconsort. Different geology, because here you're just on the rock, and the bedrock. Of course, more minority, but it's more... To be compared with, uh, you know, Regnaud, Petitmont, Van Malconsor. We're making one and a half barrel to one barrel. When I tasted this wine the first time, so it was at my supplier, and uh, I said, whoa, you know, that's got so much lift. And, and I was not even aware exactly or was, where was Odessu de Malconsor. You know, it's a tiny place. But it's something I, I love. I love hunting those Liudi, which are not well-known either because there's only one owner or because it's too small. Or I do the same, we know, with Goulou in Gevray or Tête du Clos in Chassagne. And I quite like this, but it was a good deal because it was just before harvest. And, you know, like being a négociant is also a, it's a very rich adventure in terms of human relationship. Uh, and he said, oh, yeah, maybe one day I'll let you know. I'll sell you the Malconsor, but uh, I'll sell you it in wine. I said, it's the only barrel you've got, so why, why do you want to take the risk to take it? And uh, he said, I'd love to have it in fruit. And he said, oh, no, I'm not, uh, I'm not selling fruit. I said, hey, come on, come on. <laughs> and uh, yeah, an hour later, it was done. And uh, making this wine the first time, phew, just crazy, just crazy. So you realize the power of, uh, of what Fon Romane could make. And I never made any Richebourg or Romanée Saint-Vivant, so of course I'm not talking about the two Grands Cru above. But such a dream. Everything is there. This village is really, really gifted. I remember one time you said Vaughn is magic. Yeah, it is magic. It is magic, and there's something there that you can't, you can't find elsewhere. Uh, of course you have some amazing Cru, you know. Uh, I love my Cru, I love Clausani for other reason, but... Over there, it's, it's, just, it's just magic. Magic is the white one. You mentioned how that part of Vaughan is a little higher up on the slope, and somewhere else where you're a little higher up is in the parcel of Clos saint that you have, where you're, you're actually kind of on the border with Chaffaut there. Yeah, actually, and uh, we are producing Chaffaut from the same parcel. You know, we like in Burgundy saying we are next to. Our Chaffaut is next to Clos but it's definitely a premier cru. It's not got the level of, uh, of the Grand Cru. Clausani is interesting because it's not always the Grand Cru we're thinking of, but if Maurice Sanny took Sanny as to complement its name, there's a reason. It's such a Grand Cru with such a lift, and it's very different than the other Grand Cru from this village. Clausani got an elegance that I really, really, really like. Uh, it's slightly higher and, uh, and more mineral on Chaffaut than Clausani. I like Maurice Sanny a lot. I like the aromatic and the lift you have on the aroma. 
in Morissani. And that's why I like a big part of my Gevray is actually coming from alongside uh, Morissani. I like this area. It's very underrated, actually, uh, strangely. Somewhere you're particularly strong is in the Gevray Chambertin area. And you make a range of Grand Cru's, including Mazi Chambertin, Griot Chambertin, and Le Chambertin, that are, I think, some of your best wines in red. Chambertin, alors, first of all, Gevray uh, Chambertin is one of the largest uh, appellations. Huh? With Brochon, it's like Bone, huh? it's uh, reaching almost 500 hectares. So it was, uh, in some aspect, you know, easier to get in this village. It's much easier to get into Gevray than Chambol Musini. That's why first I started there. I started in 2007 with only village. Huh? Interesting enough, I started only with like the Moray side. And then with talking with some growers, they said, you know, you should bring a bit of the north. And then bit by bit, I built my village cuvée with all the diversity of, of Gevray, which I kept. And uh, by working with different suppliers, you know, I had the opportunity to get some Grand Cru. So started with uh, Mazoyère, actually, Chambertin. I was really wanting to keep Mazoyère because for me, there's a real difference between Mazoyère and Cham Chambertin. Uh, geology is different. Uh, the, the style of wine. So just to explain, Mazoyer can be labeled as Charm Chambertin on the bottle, yeah, but no, yeah, you don't yeah. do that. So it's like a one-way road. You can call Mazoyer Charm, but you can't call Charm Mazoyer. It's how it is. Mazoyer and Charm are about the same area. There's a bit more Mazoyer than Charm. You see it more and more on label, you know, where people call the Mazoyer Mazoyer. Sometimes Charm les Mazoyer, but, you know, when the market was like mostly French, Charm Chambertin is... It's a nicer name, huh? it's charm, it's charming. And, uh, but today in the cellar, I've got charm and mazoyer. I've got both and a uh, different style. I like, you know, charm is more, more generous. It's more approachable when mazoyer is deeper, more complex, slightly more spicy. Funny enough, I don't know which one of the Grand Cru of Gevray is the best. It depends on the year. Uh, most of the time, let's say the Chambertin is the biggest. This wine is always taking its time in terms of, um, of aging. It's not the wine will will be show off, you know, in the in the cellar. But uh, when it's uh, reaching, you know, maturity, so at least eighteen months, it's, it's the most powerful. But it's a, you know, it's a very uh, silent king. You know, he, voilà, he's not showing off. He's not showing, you know, like big muscle, but he's imposing. And when you try it at his best, it's like whoa. Then, depending on the vintage, you know, I've got one coming above the others. I'm saying that, but that said, Mazoyer is almost the same every year. And I like Mazoyer for that. It's not the biggest. He's not showing a lot, but he's always at his level. You know, if I have to pick up a Grand Cru sometimes, and I'm not sure about because it's young, I will pick up Mazoyer from a younger age, because it's always going to give something. Then you have a Griot Chambertin. Alors, we are on top and underneath because here there's a little uh, depression, a hole, which from an old quarry, you know, where they're extracting stone. So, mean that those vines are actually growing on, a, on an older bedrock. And uh, here, you don't play with tannin. It's just pure lift and aromatics and a uh, very different style. You know, you can look at the Chambertin or the Griot from, uh, you can walk from one vineyard to another, but so, so different. And, uh, and when it's at its best, it's, it's a wine that 
you don't even need to drink. You can just smell the glass and uh, get drunk of the smell. And Mazi Chambertin is the one in between. So we have Mazio and Maziba together. And uh, Gevray's got a large area of, of Grand Cru. There's no doubt about the quality. It seems like there's a lot of old vines in Gevray. Like a lot of people seem to have vines in the 90, 100, 120 year old age. I was talking about the selection where there's slightly bigger grapes than uh, Van Vaud, but they were definitely, you know, for most of them free of virus and uh, aging well, aging well. If you don't have any virus, you don't have to pull out the vine. And if you can pull bit by bit and replace, and uh, no problem with that. Moving to white, you make some Grand Cru white, awesome wine. But one of the things that's so interesting about you is some of the less heralded whites are really interesting. And so I wonder if we could talk about, for example, San Roman, Oxidores, and Blani. I love those appellations, and, and it's, it's definitely one part of of my development, I think there's still a part of Burgundy which needs to be discovered, where you have great terroir, not to make Grand Cru, huh? of course. If you were talking of Grand Cru, I'd love to make Chevalier Montrachet one day. But I've got so much excitement uh, working with Vosé Dures and Sarama. And above that, the human relationship, it's so much, so much easier to deal with growers on those appellations because there's so much more freedom there. Freedom on every aspect. There's much more interaction. I'm not saying you don't have it with Grand Cru, but it's also coming to myself. When you're dealing with Grand Cru, you know, especially with one barrel of Mazi, and uh, well, you shouldn't make it wrong. <laughs> so I'm not saying I'm playing it safe, but of course, unconsciously, yeah, you, you, you keep a bit of security. When we have appellation, I don't have to. I was talking with Sarama doing vertical press. And if you if you treat them well and you do the right viticulture like you will do in Meursault, it, it works. It works well. And on top of that, with warmer weather, it, there's a super great future there. Then, uh, talking about Blania, it's part of our estate. Uh, we have a single vineyard of uh, 2.2 hectares. Uh, Blani is, is such a wonderful place. I mean, I'm talking about the place. Huh? I'm not talking about making wine. Just to be there. I mean, it, Suddenly, you're outside the Côte de Beaune. It's a real micro, micro climate and micro area with a different, I mean, even the animals are different, you know. And it, yeah, you feel good when you're there. The wine, for me, Blani has got a true identity and, uh, and the system of appellation. I understand why in the past, if it's white, you call it Meursault. If you're on the Puligny side, you call it Puligny. If it's red, you call it Blani. But there's truly there... Two geology, one for Pinot, one, one for Chardonnay. And through years, you know, like many of the Pinots have been pulled out to replant Chardonnay. Quite easy to understand because most of the time Blani was owned by a Meursault producer. So uh, when you only do one red, oh, it's a bit uh, you know, difficult to be well equipped and to manage that. And, and on top of that, Chardonnay is cropping higher. Selling Meursault is probably a higher price than a Blani Red. So that said, uh, I want to pull out some Chardonnay and replant Pinot. Well, you make a good Blani Rouge, actually. I mean, we didn't talk about it when we were doing Reds, but you're near Matro, right? And they're classic for yes, Blani Yes, La Pièce Rouge. sur le Bois, yeah, same thing. Matro is an example, you know, because I've, I've been able to taste some older vintages and they're, they're always great. But on top of that, I mean, the bottom of the slope is a terroir for Pinot. You can't mix it up. 
Chardonnay is doing well everywhere, but it's not doing as well than on Chardonnay geology. And on top of that, as the white can't be called Blani, you can call them Meursault Blani, or, but you know, you're losing the appellation. Uh, when I'm putting my Meursault Premier Cru La Pièce Sous le Bois alongside my Meursault Genevrière or Charme, or, I think it hasn't got really its place. But on its own, yeah, it's got a saltiness that the others don't have. I'd love to call my white Blani, Blani Premier Cru, and have the choice. I mean, you can have the choice of calling it Meursault Puligny or Blani, that will be the right thing. You know, it's like Saint-Aubin. Saint-Aubin is not like Puligny. And, and today, I mean, Saint-Aubin, there's no doubt. It's a great terroir and uh, everybody recognizes the appellation. But Blany is another, is another terroir which needs to be recognized. And what I like with Blany Red is, uh, since I'm making it, so 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, slightly different vintages, always great. Adapting to... Any kind of situation. So I really, I really, I really uh, I trust in Blani. I will fight for this appellation. I understand the market is uh, not ready, but it's a question of education. And, and in 20 years' time, you know, that will be the past. We'll say, you know, why, why, why at the time no one was wanting Blani? That's such a great place. From a negotiant perspective, what does it look like? Merceau, Sassam Maroche, Polini Maroche. How do they differ? Well, I've got three different situations. Uh, in Merceau, it's where I've got most of my vineyard. So over there, I'm more like a grower than a negociant. At the same time, it's a larger appellation. Uh, you have lots of, lots of good producers. There's some common side between uh, different growers, uh, mostly Dami as a corporate. Uh, which shoots well, huh? because same thing, huh? Dami grew up with the appellation, so I think it is probably one of the best supply Merceau. Uh, but Merceau, larger area, bigger diversity of, of uh, terroir, so it's easier to work on a large area as a negotiant perspective. Puligny, uh, because historically there were no sellers, always worked with the negos, but it's a smaller appellation. And uh, as it, you always worked with the negos, you know, when I arrived, there were not much room. So in Puligny, I'm working a little bit, but not an easy place to make your room. But Puligny, in a way, it's, I was talking about, you know, the magic von Romane. You have places in Puligny which are, which are magic. And uh, Chassagne, well, I've got a little vineyard. I've got my batard, Moraché, over there. And Chassagne, uh, a village with like, um, I, think, I think in this village, like people are really working together. And uh, you can see it when you're in the village, you know, uh, for whatever reason, when there's a village party, everybody's together. You know, it's a village seems to have no fight at all. And uh, it's great to work there. And then I wonder if we could just talk about soil a little bit. Sometimes you've alluded to the soil health as changing during different periods of Burgundy. I think one of the key things is to plow the soil and not using herbicide. If you want to talk about terroir, that's the first thing. Well, of course, when you have vineyards, you know, you always got the question, why are you not doing an estate label and you have the Negos label? But the vineyards I bought, you know, usually uh, were not in great shape because the vineyards for sale are not coming from the top estate. <laughs> the vineyards I took six years ago, you know, they, they had probably 30 years of herbicide. They were nothing growing for three years. And uh, it's quite amazing how fast it's coming back. Faster when you have, you have limestone and uh, so more on the cru side. When you have deeper clay like in Bourgogne, it, it takes more time. 
you know, like uh, what happened in Burgundy in the last 40 years with chemicals and herbicide is reversible. It will take much less than 40 years to bring it back. And I think if you, when you're coming to Burgundy today, you, you see in spring, you know, you don't see, it's not like five years ago where you could see, you know, like burn grass uh, with herbicide. You have more and more people, you know, uh, plowing the soil and, and respecting that. And that's, that will be a big improvement. Then the next step, of course, is to be organic, to bring life back to the soil faster. But even if you, if you don't get organic straight away, you make a big step by stop using herbicide. Now, of course, you will have effect on the, on the wine. Like one of the rules, you never, you never plow the soil like at least four weeks before harvest. Not, you can be sure you will bring back some dirt, humidity, and uh, you can get botrytis. Same thing when the grape is like closing down. If you bring the dirt inside the bunch, it's how you inoculate the bunch from inside. Looking back over the run of vintages since you started your own negociant and domain business in 2007, there's been some warm vintages there. There's been some hail vintages there. There have been some couple of cool vintages. and there's been some frost. And when you look across that run of vintages, what are particular learning moments that stand out for you? I always adapt myself. What I was trying to create with the winery is to be able to face any kind of situation. And most of the time, we're lucky enough to be sometimes over-equipped, but I suffered so much in 2003, you know, when we picked with high temperature, even if we were picking in the morning, because the night it was not cooling down, and uh, I was not, was not equipped uh, at the time uh, at the winery in Pomar. And I think I could have done better, but lack of equipment. So I've, le- I've learned mostly to adapt myself. I mean, you have ideas, you want to do things, but if you don't have the material in front of you, uh, don't do it. You know, like during harvest, we always, always got like people coming to help. And uh, most of the time, you know, they are young winemakers. So sometimes they are winemakers with skill and experience. And many times they ask me this question, but, uh, you know, uh, what is your image of the wine you want to make? And, and I said, I've got no clue. I, I don't have an image before. It's like uh, bit by bit, the colors coming and, and the image, the final image will be at the end. Before that, I want to see what's exactly on the fruit. I can't ask something which is not there. I'm, re- I'm really working always this way. So it's the best approach to when you have new situation. You were talking of a, of a frost. So like in 16, for example, we have two different vintage in one. You have the vineyards with frost and the v- vineyards which have no frost because from our Volney were totally fine. And we had to have two different approaches in terms of winemaking, but that was not planned before. That's the best way. No preconcept. If you already have a preconcept because you, you said, oh, I've seen this before, actually, every year is different. So uh, for me, I never got an image, you know, and we're talking of infusion, but maybe I, I will need one year to extract a bit more because the potential is there or because there's not enough potential. I don't know. I'm working, you know, like hours by hours, day by day, and learn with it. Ben LaRue knows he likes the smell of flowers, and he knows he likes the smell of griot. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, Levy. Ben LaRue of Benjamin LaRue, based in Bone in Burgundy, in France. 
All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. I've read, you know, that, and I heard also, huh, that before phylloxera, it was pretty common to have a small percentage of aligoté planted together with Chardonnay. And I think it's quite interesting, you know, because maybe it's an answer to the freshness and to the acidity. And why not? I'm not saying we're doing it because we're not allowed to do it, but uh, if you have a few, a few complotations, you know, of aligoté on your, on your cru, why not? So that's why we need also to preserve the best taligoté because they might be helpful for the other variety we're growing. I'm not against that idea.